Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. Are we recording now? I feel like we should give her a little rundown of what we just experienced. I, I'm here for that. We were about to record and this adorable little Girl Scout... <laughs> knocks on the door all four adults that are in the room (laughs) literally like stumble over each other like pouring out onto the driveway we're like we're we would like to buy some cookies (laughs) it was like a big stream i just remember like hoisting the cookies above my head be like best day ever (laughs) anyway hello and welcome to follow the leader with me your host mandy madrid sikich or as my phone likes to autocorrect Manfred Madrid Sikich. Fantastic. <laughs> anyway, my co-host for the day is Deborah Wood. Hello, Hello. Deborah. Thank Hello. you for being here. And guest vocalist is Naomi Mirror. Hi. And our listeners, thank you to tuning. I'm trying to say thanks for being around. As you know, you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Breaker, and oh my god, so many typos. Goggle podcasts. Yeah, you can find us on Goggle Podcasts. <laughs> that was definitely supposed to say Google Podcasts. Anyway, please rate, review, subscribe, but most importantly, if you enjoy what we're doing here at Follow the Leader, then please tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because any publicity is good publicity. We are here today to talk about a very popular composer, but we will be discussing him in a different capacity than usual. We will be discussing Felix Mendelssohn and his song, Auf Flugeln des Gesanges, with text by Heinrich Heine. Um, so this is such a special episode. Uh, Deb, do you know why? Is it a happy song? It is a happy song. Yes. It's so happy. <laughs> but more importantly than that, um, this was the song that started it all. Oh. Yeah. This was the song. So uh, a little <gasps> bit of backstory. I know what song this is. Yes, I you do. love this song. <laughs> so we were out camping in Sedona and we were sitting at the table um, under the trees and we had been processing some heavy stuff from the day before And I just remember waking up that morning and having like this weight of grief lifted off of me. And I looked up at the trees and they were reminding me, like, because they were kind of swaying back and forth in the wind. And they were reminding me of this Mendelssohn song. And I remember I like, I played the song on my phone and we each put in an earphone and I translated it for you like line as line, you know, line by line as it went by. And during that time, we were looking up to the tops of the trees, and our friend Janie, um, she snapped a candid picture. And later on in the day when I saw that candid picture, it was just the aha moment. I just knew 
podcast. This has to happen. Like, we have to do this in a regular sort of capacity. Why are you laughing? Because I feel like I'm like, I'm so in this moment. I'm looking at you like uh, like a husband looks at their <laughs> wife, like at the altar or something. Like, I'm like locking eyes. Like, yes, I'm like totally remembering the moment. Like, all, a little emotional. Little side note, if anyone wants to see that picture, it is on my Instagram. My Instagram is, uh, you can find me at Madrikich. That's M-A-D-R-I-K-I-C-H. So, uh, yeah, anyway, the song that started it all. <laughs> so let's get to it. Deborah, what do you think of when someone says Mendelssohn? That his Venetian boat song is actually one of my favorite songs to play on the piano. Cool. cool. <laughs> That's awesome. what I think yeah. of when so, I think of Mendelssohn. Yeah, totally. There are like a few specific things that typically these days we think of when we think of Mendelssohn. Definitely his songs without words. The mm-hmm. uh, Venetian boat song is um, from his um, collection of songs without words, and uh, which are piano compositions. Also, um, Bach revival. A lot of people think about when they think of Mendelssohn, they think, "Oh yeah, he was responsible for kind of like making Bach popular again." For the most part, his leader, his songs, are not usually what comes to mind when one thinks of Mendelssohn. So I'm really excited to dive in. But I thought that instead of giving you like a summary of his entire life, we could discuss a few like specific aspects of it. So uh, I personally first encountered Mendelssohn's music as a 12 or 13 year old kid when my piano teacher assigned to me Mendelssohn's G minor piano concerto. Spoiler alert, never performed it probably because I didn't practice past the third page. <laughs> I think like at the time it didn't have enough like blood and guts for me. How many pages are there? Is it like a Oh god, lot? Uh, well it's a whole concerto. So I okay. think it's like 18 minutes of okay. music. So okay. like 3 pages is like it's yes. like the first like 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> at the time I was like really obsessed with Chopin and um yeah, Chopin and Liszt and like just how overtly romantic they were and I don't know, I was like super passionate in my young age. <laughs> I used to blast Chopin nocturnes on my boom box <laughs> and I'd sit in my reading nook in my room and I'd like watch the leaves turn to fall colors I just thought it was so cool to be so <laughs> pensive and dramatic <laughs> that's how I feel about Thoreau oh I'm reading Thoreau right now I'm really in it so you like feel really awesome about yourself I do I'm like, like I'm so connected to nature I'm so like cool yeah right <laughs> Yeah, that was me at 12 listening to Chopin and Liszt. Anyway, back to Mendelssohn. Um, as a pianist, I, of course, ran across his songs without words, which are quite nice. And then actually in grad school, I became obsessed with his C minor piano trio. And I've played that as often as I can uh, because it's really just a stunning, really stunning work. And actually, there are quite a bit of blood and guts in that one. Typically mine <laughs> end up all over the <laughs> on the piano. And then, of course, in music school, you know, you get the little spiel about Mendelssohn being responsible for Bach revival Uh, but he really was just so much more multifaceted than most people realize he was a conductor a composer teacher virtuoso pianist music director organist expert improviser a violin player viola player music editor scholar Um, the author Larry Todd even calls him a musicological sleuth Um, and he was the founder of the Leipzig Conservatory He was also a watercolor painter and an artist capable of very fine drawing. He spoke several languages, and he could also read uh, Latin and Greek. And he did all of these things by the time he was 38. Okay, so I need to get on it. I have seven years. (laughs) Anytime I read about these composers, I'm like, and I have managed to rack up massive student debt. (laughs) 
And that's it. So anyway, let's dig into a few of these um, things just a bit. So let's go right in for the big one. Mandelson and Bach. To be honest, um, at that time, Bach hadn't actually been like forgotten altogether. There were some chamber groups that performed his music. Oh, I should give you Mendelssohn's dates. Mendelssohn's dates. Mendelssohn's dates are 1809 through 1847. Okay. So that's the time period we're talking about. So during that time, uh, there were some chamber groups that performed his music. Organists uh, performed Bach's music. Organists were very familiar with Bach, and Mendelssohn's own teacher, Zelta, who was himself a student of a student of Bach's. I guess that means you could call him a grand student. Yeah, I was like, are we yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> twice works, removed? LOL. <laughs> On his mother's uh, Anyway, side. I don't remember. Where. Oh, yeah, Zelter. Um, he taught Bach motets at his um, Zing Academy. So Bach equals not altogether forgotten. But there were some factors that led to Bach not being at the forefront of the public mind. First of all, <clears throat> a main place that people heard Bach's music was in church. Uh, but quite often his music was too complex or too difficult for small churches to put together. Um, most truly educated musicians did know about Bach and his music and might have wanted to study and perform it, but then there was the additional issue of most of um, his important manuscripts were not accessible to those who would put on the concerts. So they'd be like tucked away in museums and monasteries and just like really difficult to track down. Do you know specifically which work by Bach Mendelssohn is known for bringing back? No, I do not. <laughs> St. Matthew's Passion. It was a massive work, and uh, people seemed to be really intimidated, um, and they would not really even try to gather the musicians to even attempt it, just because it was so complicated. Um, I didn't even know that that existed. Oh, well, it does, and it's awesome. Um, at the time, St. Matthew's Passion was not published and not accessible to a wider audience, but it seems that there were some copies like mysteriously floating around. And somehow Mendelssohn's grandmother was able to get a copy of one of these manuscripts and gave it to Felix as a Christmas gift. So sidebar, the Mandelson, the Mandelsons, <laughs> the Mendelssohn family. Move to America. <laughs> Mandelson. <laughs> okay, back up. <laughs> sidebar, the Mendelssohn family was very wealthy. I mean, extremely wealthy. They were in the banking business. And his grandfather was also a well-known philosopher. So it was quite common for their living room to just be filled with the elite intellectuals and artists of the day. Um, it's been said that Europe itself came to their living room. So being in a position like this was probably how his grandmother was able to get her hands on a copy. They just had access to the right people at the right time. So Felix was 18 when he got this manuscript, and he was so excited about Bach's music that he began gathering friends to put on a private home performance uh, like of small sections of it. And eventually, one of Felix's friends heard uh, one of these private performances, and the next day, first thing in the morning, he was like banging on Felix's door saying that it was their duty for the sake of its place as a monument of German music to make sure it was heard by public audiences, which I just love. Yeah, I, I like it. I just find that really <laughs> sweet. <laughs> um, so they eventually convinced uh, Felix's teacher, Zelter, to allow this production to take place at the Zing Academy. Um, though the Mendelssohn family was largely responsible for providing the funding for hiring the hall and the musicians and all that. So as preparations were made, people began spreading the rumors about what was going on, and people got so excited. 
Um, when tickets for Mendelssohn's Bach concert finally went on sale, they sold out within minutes. So this is without the internet. This is without like Ticketmaster. They sold out within minutes. That's actually really impressive. Totally. It's said that at the performance, people were openly weeping because they were so overcome with the emotion. It was just such a smashing success. So before you knew it, um, because of this performance and Felix's work in it, um, St. Matthew's Passion was officially published. And then there were other public performances being given of it all over Germany. Uh, and he did this by the time he was 20 years old. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I try not to think too hard about it. Um, his ability to put on concerts of such excellence stayed with him throughout his entire life. When he accepted the post as the director of the Gewandhaus Orchestra in Leipzig, he quickly whipped them into shape. And this was partially due to his demanding of better conditions for his players. So then they worked even harder. With this kind of mentality about everything, like honoring people, honoring the work, everything he touched turned to gold. He was really meticulous with his craft. There was one time he was friends with Berlioz, uh, the composer, and Berlioz came to town. He was horrified to see Mendelssohn working in absolute minuscule detail with the chorus um, for his work. Like he was working with a, a choir. He thought that it was too menial. An assistant or something should do that. That it was too far below a musician of Mendelssohn's caliber. Um, though he, Berlioz commented that Mendelssohn did it with patience and courtesy. Um, another friend uh, commented that Felix had an almost morbid obsession with possible perfection. One night, this friend called upon Felix and found him struggling over a few bars of part song writing. He had like 20 different versions of it, of it scattered all about his study. And the friend said that any one of them would have satisfied anyone else, but Felix just could not let it go. So I, I don't know, as a recovering perfectionist, <laughs> I really appreciate this about him, um, that he worked to such a high standard. These high standards were for himself. They weren't like for other people, especially regarding his own music. He wasn't into these high standards simply for what other people would say about him. And the following quote shows how he wasn't that way simply to earn accolades or fame. He wrote in a letter to a friend, I'm as unconcerned with fame as I am with obtaining the post of Kapellmeister. It would be nice if both happened. Yet as long as I don't starve to death, it's my duty to work as my heart dictates. My only thought ever present is honestly to compose as I feel things, and less and less because of outside considerations. If I've composed a piece and it's from my heart, I've absolved my duty. I don't care whether it brings fame, honors, distinctions, or snuff boxes. Oh my gosh, snuff boxes. <laughs> yeah, snuff He's boxes. He's so sweet. LOL. But yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really... And I don't know, yeah. I just really appreciate that about an artist of that caliber saying like, actually... I got in a fight about this with a musician and I was like, no, like even if you're excellent, you need to be humble. Yeah. And he was like... No, if you're like a diva, then you get to be a diva. We got in like a oh, big geez. conversation about it. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, oh. I'm like, no, you can't. He's like, yes, yeah. they have the right to be like, you know, step on people because of like their expertise. And yeah. I was just like, nope. The Gewandhaus concerts in Leipzig became so popular that people began complaining that the hall was too small. He was a master programmer and presented programs of incredible diversity. Some all Beethoven concerts, uh, and then he did a historical concert series. He also featured lots of works by his contemporaries, including Schumann. He was also really careful not to feature too much of his own work. 
And it was during one of these concerts that he premiered a little work that Schumann had discovered in Vienna, Schubert's Last Symphony, the Great C Major. Um, an attempt at rehearsal for performance during Schubert's life had ended in disaster. But, of course, when Mendelssohn rehearses it, he does it so meticulously that it was a delightful success. Same sort of thing happened with Beethoven's Choral Symphony. Another conductor spent three years rehearsing it with his orchestra, only to have it met with bewilderment and not much success. Felix prepares it, and it's hugely successful. Um, the flip side, though, of having these high standards is that there was one time when he was preparing a London orchestra for a performance of Schubert's C Major Symphony, and the orchestra was laughing at the particular writing in this one part, and they laughed at it, and he got so mad that he just canceled the performance altogether. <laughs> <laughs> which I also like. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, got a backbone. Cool, <laughs> what a badass. <laughs> um, so all of this led him to being one of the first conductors to pave the way for modern conductors, interpreting the score in a specific and individualized way. While in Leipzig, um, he welcomed so many of the great composers slash performers of the day. Liszt, Chopin, Berlioz. Uh, there was quite a stir when Liszt came to town, you know, the original rock star. Um, and some of the elite were worried that he would come to town and like be undeservedly popular and that he would win the adulation of the crowds, like simply for his good looks and like his firework performing antics. Looking? Yeah, supposedly. Okay. He had a huge mole on his nose, but like women faint, like swooned at him. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. He was. Maybe it was like the Cindy Crawford mole on her lip. I think so. I okay. think I think people were into it. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going to read this hilarious anecdote. Uh, this is from when Liszt came to town. Liszt, who was dressed in Hungarian national costume, looked wild and handsome and announced that he had prepared something special for Mendelssohn. He sat down at the piano and played first a Hungarian folk song and then three or four variations on it, each more incredible than the last, all the while swinging to and fro on the piano bench. We stood around, totally overcome. After praising the hero of the hour, one of Mendelssohn's friends said to him, Well, Felix, now we can pack up. Nobody can play like that. All of us had better give up. Mendelssohn smiled, and when Liszt approached him, saying that now it was his turn, he burst out laughing and declared that he was not going to play. Liszt would not take no for an answer, and after some back and forth, Mendelssohn said, Well... I will play, but you mustn't get angry with me. So saying, he sat down and played. What? First the Hungarian folk song, then Stop. all the variations. I was hoping this is where it reproducing, was going. <laughs> reproducing them so accurately that only Liszt himself might have discerned a difference. We were all afraid lest Liszt might feel a little peeved because Mendelssohn, like a real joker, could not prevent himself from imitating Liszt's grandiose movements and extravagant gestures. But Liszt laughed, applauded enthusiastically, and admitted that nobody, not even himself, could have managed such a piece of bravura. That's amazing. That's, <laughs> my, new that that's my new favorite story. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, another thing I really appreciate about Mendelssohn is his writings about his travels, and he just has some really funny anecdotes. Honestly, I would have loved to sit there and people watch with him because I think he would be ruthless. <laughs> um, he wrote about how one time he stopped into a casino and started playing the piano, but he played so well that all the patrons stopped gambling to listen to him, and the owner proclaimed that there would never again be a piano in the gambling hall. <laughs> Uh, during his travels, he made his way to London, 
Uh, he had always been obsessed with all things British, and he adored and loved London. He said in a letter to his father, It's fearful. It's mad. I'm mixed up and confused. London is the grandest and most complicated monster on the face of the earth. And London adored him back. While there, he met Charles Dickens, and Mendelssohn quickly became his favorite composer. Queen Victoria herself was a huge fan. In fact, he was held in such high regard by London society that Chopin said, if you wish to have success in London, you have to play Mendelssohn. Um, and people have thought that maybe this is partially to do with the fact that, I don't know, just the Victorian sensibilities of the time. You know, he was the sort of ideal Victorian gentleman. The Victorian age was optimistic and really active, and so was Mendelssohn's music. And it didn't really have, like, problems, you know, not the problems that, like, Beethoven's music ended up later on in his later periods. And That's interesting that... I love Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. but it, he's so complex. Mm. And it's funny that he would like Mendelssohn's music so much if yeah. it was like a little bit lighter. Yeah, yeah. Because like, he, Charles Dickens is heavy. Yeah. I think he just really appreciated the wit, though. Okay. I, Mendelssohn was really witty and like pretty witty in his writing. And I think that that's what he appreciated about it. Oh. So, yeah. Um, Italy, however, uh, in contrast to London, was, it was another matter. He was not too impressed with Italy or Italians. He said that those who sang Italian music the best did not come from Italy. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Like, burn. <laughs> he um, had a bad carriage driver once, and he said this. I couldn't stand the carriage driver's rudeness and insults a moment longer. I just unloaded my things, and I told him to drive to the devil. Definitely going to my book of insults. <laughs> Uh, He completed his first book of songs without words while he was in Venice. So that's probably why that Venetian boat song influence is there. Okay. Um, Yeah. Also, he might have had a grudge against Italians because a manuscript of his was confiscated by an Italian customs agent um, because they thought it might contain like a secret code in it. (laughs) Something we'll go into much further detail about in a future episode is his relationship with his older sister, Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. She was also exceedingly gifted in all things musical. And not only did he adore her, but he also looked up to her for musical advice. I've played some of her stuff, and it is also, like, really, really cool. I think it should be played much more often. They remained close throughout their entire lives until she suddenly died from a stroke in May of 1947. Um, She was literally just sitting at the piano and keeled over. Oh, did I say 1947? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Let me say that again. (laughs) Uh, They remained close throughout their entire lives until she suddenly died from a stroke in May of 1947. Oh, my God. I said it again. She died in 1847, folks. That's that's what that was supposed to say. (laughs) Definitely did not proofread this before printing. (laughs) Anyway, upon hearing the news uh, that she had died, Felix himself collapsed I think he was in another city at that point, and when he traveled to her home and saw her room for the first time after she died, he just broke da- down and ended up canceling all future musical engagements. It was really sad. It just, mm-hmm. it just broke him. He died approximately six months later. Based on his symptoms and the accounts of people who are around him in his last days, he probably died from a ruptured brain artery himself. Um, he just never came back after, after her death. So what can we say in summation? He experienced great success during his life. He was praised from a young age for his prodigious talent and for being just so precocious. Um, The poets Goethe and Heine both described the child Mendelssohn as a second Mozart. And honestly, Goethe could really speak with some authority as he heard the young Mozart play. 
And when he met the young Mendelssohn, um, he said that Mendelssohn's accomplishments were the cultivated talk of an adult, while Mozart's had been childlike prattle. Goethe burn. Ouch. Um, (laughs) It was quite sad that Mendelssohn's popularity and reputation suffered quite a bit after his death. For as much as people praised him in his life, he experienced equal amounts of disdain after his death. Um, It sort of started with a composer, Richard Wagner. He wrote a racist text in which Wagner... I didn't know Wagner was racist. Oh, it was really bad. Very, very anti-Semitic. So in in this text, Wagner stated that because of his Jewish heritage, Mendelssohn was only capable of imitating the profundities of composers like Bach and Beethoven. Oh, my gosh. Also, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a reaction against the ideas of the Victorian era and, like... As a darling of Victorian Britain, uh, Mendelssohn's reputation further suffered. And then after that, there was the rise of the Third Reich, and there were efforts to truly erase Mendelssohn from German musical culture. Uh, There was even a monument of Mendelssohn in front of the Gewandhaus, and that was unceremoniously like taken down and hidden in the middle of the night. My sense of justice just got like triggered, and I feel like very passionately right. (laughs) Well, that's why we're here talking. I'm like (laughs) really like uh, quite upset at the moment. Um, And this sort of treatment was not limited to Felix Mendelssohn only. In 1939, the Mendelssohn Banking House uh, was was dissolved, well, because Hitler, uh, and any Mendelssohns still in Germany were just scattered throughout the earth. Um, This negativity surrounding Mendelssohn was quite pervasive. People began crediting his teacher with the Bach revival. His affinity for counterpoint and fugal writing was criticized. People went on to criticize Mendelssohn as a conductor and the tempi he chose. As a pianist, he was criticized for not being more like Chopin and Liszt, both in performance and in his writing. And to my shame, 12-year-old me nods in agreement on that one. <laughs> little did we know about the freaking Liszt story, though. Right, right. Yeah. Little did we know. Yes. <laughs> then there was the critique of his music being too symmetrical, too predictable. And like in my head, I can just hear a critic saying, it's just like too perfect <laughs> and then from Mendelssohn's grave I just see like the squinty eye emoji like floating <laughs> but there's good news Mendelssohn and his music have been seeing an upturn in reception and performance there's lots of stuff being written about him and so much of his music is being performed um, and he came into my view or if you want to be dramatic he entered the stage of my life as a song <laughs> composer when I was asked to fill in for another pianist in a project that my teacher directed at my school. Turns out that I ended up being introduced to some of what are now my truly most favorite songs of all time. But as we know, I say that about like every single song that we have on the podcast. (laughs) Sorry about it. As I mentioned before, um, a lot of people are not even aware that Mendelssohn wrote songs with words. But actually, his earliest surviving composition is a song. Um, Only 26 measures long, this song was written for his father's birthday in December of 1819. He continued to write songs throughout his entire life, and he wrote approximately 135 solo songs. Um, The author and song goddess, Susan Ewins, points out that perhaps Mendelssohn's songs don't get too much attention because most of them are performable by amateurs. Um, But this is just reflective of the salon salon culture of Mendelssohn's time. And for the most part, they do not grapple with the romantic subjectivity, like in the vein of Schumann or Schubert. 
Um, further, Mendelssohn had a really interesting relationship with words, therefore an interesting relationship with song. Um, I'm going to read from an excerpt of a letter to one of his students. He says this, So much is spoken about music and so little is said. For my part, I do not believe that words suffice for such a task, and if they did, I would no longer make any music. People usually complain that music is too many-sided in its meanings. What they should think when they hear it is so ambiguous, whereas everyone understands words. For me, it is precisely the opposite, not only with entire speeches, but also with individual words. They too seem so ambiguous, so vague, so subject to misunderstanding when compared with true music, which fills the soul with a thousand better things than words. So it's really interesting. I've never really... I never really thought about that concept before of words not being specific enough. But that's just what he was bringing to the table regarding words. And um, I think we can see that in the way that he composed song. He was very opinionated about how text should be set to music. He thought that it should not be too specific. So Schubert's Erlkönig, for instance, displeased him. He said that it left no room for interpretation. That was too specific. We, we hear too much of the galloping horse and, and the um, fearful child and the creepy Earl King. So while some people believe that his songs do not show enough regard for the text, he was intentional in this choice of not being too specific with the writing. So I think that this next point is kind of interesting and gives us a little bit of perspective on that. Some scholars have suggested that Mendelssohn had a very visual imagination and that perhaps he wanted his listeners to perceive his songs the way one would perceive a painting, like the whole thing at one time. And this could be the reason that he wrote mostly strophic songs. Um, remember that strophic is, um, those are songs composed in like verse format. So each verse has the same melody or nearly the same melody with little variation, but different words for each verse. In a strophic song, you have the chance to perceive of the whole multiple times. So, I mean, there's no way to prove if this was how he thought, but I definitely think it's interesting to think about. And it makes sense when you hear one of these songs. I, not that I'm saying that I'm like Mendelssohn, because I'm not, but <laughs> I relate to everything that was just stated. I think I oh yeah okay because I see things a lot and I have a very mm. like active imagination and I find words lacking yeah yes Mendelssohn I agree <laughs> see I think you guys would be pals I don't me too <laughs> um, again Susan Ewan says it best uh, Mendelssohn believed that both words and music in song are responses to larger universal concepts and that the listener must be allowed to participate in his or her own unique way in the conceptualization of that realm. Music that was too specific in its attachment to this or that textual nuance interfered, he believed, with the ability to perceive more important things in the poetry. It's just, to me, it's kind of mind-blowing because I'm not that way. Words, to me, light my imagination like nothing else. Um, so it's really, I really enjoyed being introduced to this concept, and we'll be exploring it for, I'm sure, years to come. So, um, time for a reading of the text of our song. On the Wings of Song is a poem by Heinrich Heine. Uh, it was first published in 1823 and then again in 1827 as the ninth poem in his Buch der Lieder. So, here we go. Here is my translation. 
on wings of song. On wings of song, hearts beloved, I carry you off, off to the banks of the Ganges. There I know the most beautiful place. There lies a red blossoming garden in the still moonlight. The lotus flowers wait for their dear, dear sister. The violets giggle and gossip and gaze upwards at the stars. Secretly, the roses whisper fragrant fairy tales in each other's ears. The pious, clever gazelles hop by and listen, and in the distance rustles the holy stream's waves. There, let us sink down under the palm tree and drink of love and peace and dream blissful dreams. So I just like it so much still. <laughs> yeah. um, I think maybe let's do a performance of it and then and then talk about these things. Yes. Schwesterlein, 
clap, 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 clap. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> it was beautiful. I remember, like, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, yes, I totally remember this. Um, it's interesting because with music, a lot of times I'm drawn more to minor or moodier pieces. And it feels like Same, they, honestly. they, like, kind of pull at me more. But then, I don't know, it just like a deep appreciation grew in me as a song progressed for just feeling like peaceful. I mean, just generally, the general impression of it is it's pretty ideal, right? Like you're yeah. saying like, okay, like normally like minor keys, but this just like is inviting me to kind of yes. sink in. And um, that's a good word. It did feel like an invitation to like reassess my perspective. Okay, so. Let, let's, let's get into this because this is so fascinating. And okay, I'm just going to read what I prepared because I don't want to get ahead of myself and give too much away. But okay. I really had to think <laughs> about this because I was presented with a new perspective on this song and it blew my mind. So this poem could be read straightforward and the song could be performed in earnest. And indeed, that is the way that I've always thought of it. Oh, what a sweet poem set in paradise it's so ideal. You can hear it, obviously. But then you have to think, hmm, the poet is Heine. What do we know about Heine? Now, just because I've dealt with a lot of German poetry, I know that I'm, awa I'm aware that he incorporated quite a bit of satire and sarcasm into his writings. And this poem was written right around that time when he started imbuing just everything with biting irony. He often mocked and made fun of romanticism and romantic love. There's the whole, that whole movement and the idolization of romantic ideals. He was really well known for his ironic disillusionment. And so is this poem an example of that mindset? Or is it genuine? And what does that mean for us when we perform the song? Like, did Mendelssohn catch on to that? Because upon first listen, you might just think, oh yeah, genuine, in earnest love song. But I think it might actually be a little bit more complicated than that. That's really interesting. Even if that's the case, unless a human is like totally disgruntled, they kind of switch in and out of both of those modes, I think. Okay, okay. That's really interesting right? that you say that. So I'll come back to that later. So Mendelssohn was no dummy, right? Remember, he was surrounded by like the intellectuals of the age from a young age. I mean, Goethe himself was one of Mendelssohn's mentors. And I don't think he would have missed the fact that Heine would have had, a, could have had a double meaning here. And I'm sorry to bring her up again, but I just have to bring up Susan Ewens because she points out in her essay, so brilliant, um, her essay Mendelssohn's Songs, that this song is an arch example of Mendelssohn's songs. It's not virtuosic. It's not tonally adventurous. It's warm and the strophic whole is more important than the little details. But she goes on to say that you really can see this from another point of view, that maybe Mendelssohn went in on the deception with Heine. Mendelssohn would have known that this would be performed by amateurs, like in their salons. So you can imagine a young man singing this in public to woo or win over his crush. So like he sings of a paradise of love, but really it's just like thinly veiled erotic talk. I mean, sinking down under a palm tree? Yeah. <laughs> what you gonna do down there? 
The lotus flowers leave, blooming? Yeah, does not leave too much to the imagination. Um, and I mean, I personally, of course, being me, I went a bit further down that path. I mean, when he says red blossoming garden that lies in the still moonlight, he's acknowledging the physical aspect of his sweetheart being a red blossoming garden. As in she's in child, she's of childbearing age, and as in he would like to plant his seed in her garden. There's even like some pretty erotic chromaticism when he talks about he talks about their blissful dream. It just like pulls her down. It goes down chromatically. I mean, it's it's a small small snippet at the very end. You'll hear it when we do it for you again. Um, but it just kind of inspired inspired me. It seems a bit slimy, so I kind of ran with it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, then there's the lotus flowers that he talks about. Lotus flowers often represent purity. And in an article by Katie Robinson, she says, the lotus has stunned people with its ability to dip into the grime and revive itself unscathed. And I think maybe he's saying by like pointing out those lotus flowers, he's saying like, it's okay to like have sex because my dear, well, you're like a lotus and you'll emerge unscathed. You'll emerge pure. <laughs> You know, somehow she'll be able to pull that off. But I think he's just trying to, like, say anything he can think of that would get her to, like, agree with him. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should do that. And then he brings in the gazelles. He calls them pious and clever. Um, and he says they're listening as they hop by them. It's sort of reassuring her. It's okay for us to indulge. Look at the gazelles. They're pious and they're wise and they're okay with it, so we could be okay with it too. That's interesting. Yeah, I just, it all feels like like this slimy kind of wooing, trying to convince her it's okay, which, I don't know, makes the song feel a little like, oh, I'm like uncomfortable, but it's interesting. I think it's so interesting. And uh, yeah, just fascinating to think about that element and what it could bring to the performance. So I don't know, what do you think? No, that's it, like, I think there's so many options. Do you know what I mean? Like, especially like when you're looking back, we don't really know, but like looking at, looking at the song or listening to it from different perspectives is like, Oh, it could be this, or it could be that, or it could be like literally what it says, like two people in love. Do you know it could be like simple and pure, or it could be the slimy guy trying to like get the girl. Mm -hmm. Or it could be like something in the between those or totally different. You know what I mean? It's just it's kind interesting. of interesting because then when as a performer, okay, what's going to happen today? I mean, on this one, you know, often when I'm preparing songs, I like kind of make up my mind like one way or another about something. But on this one, like I'm going to have to like have my cake and eat it too. And I really like the idea of this song sort of having a recital double life, all sweet and innocent in one performance, and then maybe super slimy and seductive in the next. And uh, I feel like, you know, there might be something to sometimes performing it as a genuine love song pure and lovely come my beloved let's dream of our tropical paradise together of the palm trees swaying in the starlight above us and then maybe the other day is performing it as the ultimate like douchey pickup line you know like hey baby let's dream of some palm trees and what we do (laughs) under them (laughs) Um, that's like fun to have the freedom to be able to interpret it in different ways though yeah no one's gonna come tell you you can't do that right now oh totally (laughs) if anything it really 
it just helps us as performers. You might not know in the audience, you might not know which way we're performing it, but probably you will read from us that we're super convinced about what we're doing and really enjoying it. Whatever way that kind of translates to the audience. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe should we do it one more time? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it one more time. You can kind of hear it now with different ears. Which one are you guys singing from? I'm not going to tell you. Will I ever find out? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh, actually, I have to say on a technical note that there are a few places where I do get a little bit specific. When the violets giggle, for instance, I try to show them giggling in the piano part by making it like a little bit staccato. And then when the gazelles hop about, I like, again, try to be sort of like light on my feet. And when they sink down underneath the palm tree in the in the piano part, I try to bring attention to the earth by like accentuating the bass. So, I mean, it's not a ton of things to listen for. And maybe that would that would be too specific for Mendelssohn. Um, I don't really know, but I know it's what helps me bring the text to life and the music to life. Um, so those are just like a few little technical things that you could listen for that might, yeah, might be Exciting. interesting. I'm yeah. very excited. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we'll do it one more time. Yeah. 
that's it. Thanks for joining us today. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Also, you can follow me on Instagram at Madrikich. That's spelled M-A-D-R-I-K-I-C-H. This has been Follow the Leader with me, Mandy Madrid-Sikich, co-host Deborah Wood, and guest vocalist Naomi Mirror. Bye! If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.